Well, let me add my own greeting and a word of welcome on this Easter Sunday. It's great to see some faces we have not seen in two years. Welcome back and welcome home. It's good to see some faces that are here for the very first time. Welcome and thank you for spending some time on this holiday weekend, on this Easter morning with us. So we're just delighted to be able to, to be able to gather in this way. I want to be clear when, when we gather together on this weekend of all weekends in the year and we say happy Easter, I want to be clear what we mean. Because here's what we don't mean. We don't mean the sun is shining and spring is here and crocuses are pushing their way up out of the ground. We don't mean bonnets and bunnies. We don't mean chocolate. I mean, we're big fans of chocolate in our house. Let's be clear. But that's not really what we mean. We are gathered here on what historically has been called Resurrection Sunday. This is about resurrection. And let me be clear about what that means. That is not the same as resuscitation. That's not the same as reincarnation. We're not talking about a man who swooned and lost consciousness and camped out for a few hours inside the tomb and then woke up having been given a vision about what heaven was like and then wrote a best-selling book. We are talking about crucifixion, about execution, but wrapped up in grave clothes and sealed into a tomb, sealed up for three days. And then three days later, witnesses arriving to find the stone rolled back, not just a body gone, but Jesus alive. So here's what I'd like to spend our day doing. There are, recorded in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, three witnesses to the events that happened that day. So if you have your Bibles, have them open on your lap, or if you have your device, you can turn it on. Don't look at Twitter. Look at the Bible app. Okay, We're in John chapter 20. We're going to look at the three witnesses. God has designed the Gospel, the good news about Jesus, to go into the world through the testimony of witnesses. Eyewitness reports, and it starts here with these three in the Gospel of John, but it doesn't end there. There are hundreds of thousands, actually millions of testimonies that have continued to express the same truth, that we have experienced the risen Christ at work in our lives. It's had an impact. There's been a legacy. There's a deposit of faith that Jesus has left in me. So what we're going to do is interweave those three historic testimonies from the Gospel of John with three current testimonies as we listen to the voices of members of our own church family here. We're going to go back and forth from the historical to the present as a way of celebrating the fact that he is alive. This is not just history. This is reality. So three witnesses. Here's the first. John and Peter are walking away from the empty tomb, and the first, um, the first recorded witness of Jesus himself speaking is Mary Magdalene. Uh, now, this is not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is also a prominent person in the life of the Bible. But, you know, whenever Jesus is mentioned as, as gathering his most intimate friends and followers around him, there's the disciples, and then the same breath, usually is mentioned Mary of Magdala. Uh, it's not her last name. It's not Richard Root. It's 
Mary of Magdala, which would be the same as saying Richard of Mississauga. It's a reference to where she came from. She was a woman who had been healed and restored by Jesus, healed from a life of brokenness and pain, lifted up from the pit of of shame and sadness and sorrow, restored from a life lived on the fridges of society, because let's be honest, society can be cruel and it can be brutal, particularly to women, women and particularly in the first century. And it was exactly that to Mary. But Jesus had restored her. And and she had walked with him all through his ministry. She'd been there at his feet, listening, learning. And she was one of the very few people described in the last moments of Jesus' life as never having left his side. She was there, right there in the shadows of the cross, huddled in stunned belief, as she, disbelief. As she watched this man who had changed her life in whom she had placed all of her hopes breathe his last breath. And then John 20, we catch her story. This is a couple of days later as she's making her way to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark. What was she doing? Well, she's doing what you and I do when we go to visit a graveside. She's going to pay her respects. She's going to remember. She's going to pray. And when she gets there, the emotion that's recorded in Scripture is not the one we would expect on Resurrection Sunday. We'd expect joy, ribbons raising, uh, waving, people singing, just that absolute ecstasy. That's not the emotion. It's shock, and then it's anger, and it's terror. She gets there, and she finds the stone has been rolled away, and immediately she thinks the same thing you would think if you went to visit your loved one and you saw the ground was all scooped away. You think the grave has been desecrated. Somebody has come and done an act of blatant grave robbery. You feel violated. You're profoundly disturbed. Somebody has taken the body of your loved one. Now, apparently that wasn't an uncommon thing in that day. Maybe a little less common in our day. But we hear the story uh, about how Peter and John pick up on what happens to Mary. The Bible says Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels, two messengers, same word, angel or messenger, two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had once lain, one where the head was, one where the feet were. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said in response, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they put him. In other words, grave robbery. Somebody's stolen the body. And having said this, she turned around and she saw, see it in your Bible? She saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus standing there. You can only imagine, I mean, through a a veil of tears with no expectation whatsoever that Jesus would be standing there, how she failed to reach the conclusion you see, we sometimes look at, at the people in the days of the Bible and we think they're primitive people. that They're naive, pre-scientific and stupid, gullible. They're just ready for anybody to pop up from the grave like a groundhog looking for their shadow. Absolutely not true. They had no expectation of resurrection. That was not a part of the commonly held belief either in the Greco-Roman world or in the Jewish world. It's not like they were waiting for him to pop up again. 
In fact, Jesus had a hard time trying to get that message across that Jesus is going to do something radically new and that God, in, in raising him from the dead, this would fulfill an expectation that people had long since let go of. Nobody expected a dead man to rise. And Mary was no different. She looks over through teary eyes and the man speaks to her, says, woman, why are you weeping? Who is it that you're seeking? This is an interesting little detail. Thinking that maybe he was the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if, if it's you that's taken him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll come get him and, and take him to be with me. And then Jesus spoke, and here's, here's where the veil comes down. He said to her one word, Mary. And there must have just been something about the way he said it. The inflection in his voice, the tenderness, the understanding. That suddenly everything came into crystal focus. It was him. It, it was really him. This was Jesus again. I mean, can you imagine the weight, the wonder of that moment? As despair and shock and anger and despair turned to almost delirious joy. This one that she had followed and seen murdered in the cruelest way possible. The horror of a scene still fresh in her mind. All hopes dashed, all joy ripped away. This one to whom she'd come in the wee hours of the morning only to attend to burial rituals and giving honor. I mean, for Mary... Like for so many people, when it rains, it doesn't just rain, it doesn't just pour. This was a tsunami in her life. And it all comes to a moment of delirious peace at the sound of her voice, sound of a voice speaking her name, Mary. Have any of you, have any of you ever been at that place in the world where you've experienced something, a, a grief, a sadness that runs so deep that there are no words to write it. You ever felt like your your hopes have been completely dashed, your joy has been taken away, like you're left alone in the middle of all of it? I have a suspicion that there are people in the room who've been there. There are people who are watching us online who know what that's like. You know what it's like to stand in Mary's position completely alone in a desecrated tomb, weeping, unable to be consoled by the angels themselves, much less some gardener, until this supposed gardener whispers a single word, your name, Mary, Pat, Alice, Peter, Lannis. One by one, Jesus moves through the world, calling you out by name. And in the moment when you hear your name on the lips of Jesus, maybe your response is the same sort of tender acknowledgement that Mary gives. She says, Rabboni, which means my dear teacher, my good friend and mentor. If Mary were to give a testimony or to give a title to it, I suspect it would some, run something like this. I was, I was hurting. I was broken. I was in darkness and pain. 
and he gave me hope. Isn't that, after all, the point of the resurrection? That the world is, is filled with sorrow and hurt and sin and sadness and uh, terrible calamities, shattered dreams, warfare, violence, all of it. Unexpected disease, inevitable death. And Jesus came to conquer it all. He goes to the cross. He takes the full weight of it on already battered shoulders. He takes all of it, dies three days later against anybody's expectation, emerges victorious from death. This is not resuscitation. This is resurrection. You know the difference. You've read stories. I have too about a person who, who stops breathing, their heart stops, the brain stops, they're gone for four or five minutes. And then through some of the miracles of modern medicine, there is resuscitation. They're brought back to life again. Sometimes they write the story of what they saw in those moments in between death and reemergence. That's resuscitation. But here's the part that they don't account for in their story. A few years later, they die anyway. This is resurrection. Raised from the dead, never again to die. No matter what life brings you, no matter how life hurts, you can know that this is not all that there is. There is more to you. There is life to come. This is resurrection. I was hurting and he gave me hope. I want you to listen to the testimony of one of my dear friends. She talks about the experience of walking through one of those valleys and finding hope. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you hope in a future. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Hi, my name is Maud Yawa Darkey, and that is the Bible passage that I hold on to during very challenging times. And before I share with you my testimony about the goodness and love of the Lord, I have to admit if you had told me six years ago that I'd be sharing a testimony about facing health challenges, I would have never believed you. You see, six years ago, I was a happy, healthy wife expected her first child. I was optimistic about life and thought life would be straightforward. But as we know, life is never straightforward. But we also know with the goodness and grace of the Lord, all will be well. I am well and blessed. So let me tell you about my story. At six months of pregnancy, I gave birth to my stillborn son, Mawanam. Mawanam means God gives. Needless to say, I was devastated. It was a very challenging time. I remember leaving the hospital without Mawanam in my arms and feeling like I was going to collapse. I had to hold on to the pillar of the building in order to stand. And honestly, I felt like a failure. I felt like I had failed my son and failed my family. It was a horrible time. God used that horrible time to strengthen me and my family and to draw us close. I am so grateful to my family who never abandoned me and who strengthened me. Also, I'm grateful to my MCBC family some who knew me, but many who did not know me well at all, who took the time to pray for me. I am so blessed. So God brought me out of that hard, dark time. And for a while, life went on. 
Unfortunately, a year after that tragedy, I developed huge blood clots in my legs and my lungs. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune illness called lupus. Lupus is when your immune system attacks your organs and your tissues. I remember my left leg being double the size of my right leg, and I feared that I would never walk again. By the goodness of the Lord, the swelling went down, and my health stabilized to the point that after my day job as a project manager, I volunteered as a fitness instructor. And again, life went back to normal. Unfortunately, in March 2020, last year, I developed another blood clot which stretched from my knee to my hip. I'm truly brothers and sisters. I was very worried about my health. I thought, would these health challenges ever end? And honestly, I don't know. But I do know but that by the grace of God, all will be well and that he strengthens me. What I've learned from these tragedies is that although my son is with God, although my marriage ended, although my health fails sometime, God can never fail. As stated in Psalms 46.1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we won't be afraid, though the earth changes. Also, I'm learning to surrender. And honestly, not all days are straightforward. Some days I really struggle. But then God reminds me to take it day by day, hour by hour. I focus on my blessings and leave the rest to God. And when I look around, I realize how blessed I am. I'm blessed to have a strong, God-fearing, God-loving family. Also, I am blessed to be part of Mississauga City Baptist Church, where we pray and encourage each other. Also, to have a pastoral team that is always there for us. I remember Pastor Richard coming to the burial of my son and strengthening all that were there. I am assured that I will see my son again. Also, I'm thankful to Pastor Sheldon, who came to the hospital during my darkest time to pray for me. Also, I also know that as stated in Philippians 3.14, I press on towards a goal to win the prize for which God has called me. Simply, I press on in this life. So brothers and sisters, we know that we face so many challenges and so much uncertainty, but we know we can surrender all to God. We'll always be there. We know the thoughts that God has for us, thought of and not of evil, to give us hope and a future. Thank you. So Jesus comes to us right where we are. Sometimes that means in the middle of struggle and in the middle of pain, just like he did with Maud, just like he did with Mary. There in the middle of our hurting, he brings hope. But let's be honest. Some of you, uh, whether you are brand new here or whether you've been coming repeatedly, will think, well, that, that sounds good for them. 
but it's all pretty subjective, isn't it? I've never really experienced this Jesus in me thing. After all, there's millions of people in the world, millions of people with different experiences of life. There's all these different religions. Maybe maybe Jesus worked okay for Mary. Maybe he worked okay for Maud. But that doesn't mean that Jesus will work for me. Just because it's true for them doesn't mean it's true for me. There's Islam, there's Buddhism, there's atheism, agnosticism. It's all just a matter of choice, isn't it? Subjective preference. And there's something in us, because after all, we're Canadians, and and we love each other, and we're tolerant, and we, we have this pluralistic society. There's something in us that wants to say, yeah, of course, of course. But there is a difference between saying, I respect your choices and your ability to choose, and saying that it's all the same. When you pause for a moment and think about the account that we read this morning by Charlotte and and by Art, didn't they both do a great job? Thank you, Art. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is not a matter of subjective preference at all. It actually is a matter of truth. And think about it this way. Either Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead or he did not. That's not a question of preference. You don't get to choose whether that's true or not. You can choose to believe it or not. But it's an important question. And here's the reality. If Jesus did not rise from the the grave, then you wasted your time getting out of bed on a Sunday morning on a holiday weekend, getting all dressed up and dragging yourself here. Because the whole thing is a lie. The, the, the most basic tenet on which Christianity is built is a lie. And Christians are fools, and I'm one of the chief, and lots of millions others are among us. The Bible says it this way, quite candidly, 1 Corinthians 15, that followers of Jesus are to be pitied among all people if, in fact, Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Because we based our lives on a lie. So if you're not a Christian today and you're watching or you're listening or you're learning, and and, and in fact, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you should just feel sorry for us because we're fools. But if it's true, if it's true, and he came bursting forth from the grave, not resuscitation, resurrection, then there are ramifications not only for every person in the room, everyone watching online, but for everyone who has ever drawn breath on the planet. This is the one who taught that this is God in flesh. This is what God looks like. Watch me as I live out the values that God stands for. Exemplify the character that God holds. Offer the words that God would have you hear, but watch me even more important as I come bursting through the barriers of sin and darkness and death itself, dead for three days, risen from the grave, never to die again. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't have to worry about anything else than he said. But if he did, then we really ought to listen to every single word, hang on it with bated breath. The question is not just a matter of preference or opinion. It's ultimately a question of truth. Did he rise from the dead? And as in most truth claims, there's a burden of proof that will fall on both sides. The followers of Jesus, we need to be able to give evidence that, yeah, in fact, it's true. And here's how we know that Jesus rose from the grave. 
But there's also a burden of proof on the side of those who object. Because there's no question among even the most secular historians and scholars that around 2,000 years ago, this entirely new religious community and movement formed almost overnight. And like, like a match to Tinder, it, it moved explosively into the world. You have to be able to account for what happened there. Immediately, immediately after Jesus rose from the dead, hundreds of people, started with Mary, but hundreds of people started claiming that they had seen him. More importantly, they didn't just claim it, they died for claiming it. I mean, how many of you, if you knew you'd been duped and it was a lie, if you just made it up, would be willing to go to the grave for a lie? Not likely. How do you explain it? There is a burden of proof on both sides. And there have been a lot of explanations offered for why this might, in fact, not be true. Because there's something in us, in our modern scientific mindset, that wants to believe it couldn't possibly happen. That's exactly why it's so important to say that it's a miracle and it did happen. Some people will believe that that Jesus, in fact, didn't even go to the cross, much less rise from the grave. And you think, well, I've never met anybody like that. Sure you have. Uh, This is probably the common teaching of Islam, who respect Jesus tremendously as a teacher of God, as a prophet of God. But at some point, they think that the narrative got mixed up. And uh, that wasn't Jesus. It was just somebody who looked like him on the cross. And then a mythology started to arise around him. That's a teaching that entered the world around 600 years after Jesus, around the time of Muhammad. Others believe that that was Jesus on the cross, but he didn't actually die. Instead, he was just a little bit hurt. Actually, maybe badly hurt. <clears throat> but, but he recovered. And quickly. Within three days. So somehow, uh, within the, the darkness of that tomb, he got his act back together, recovered his strength, pushed the stone aside, and walked back out into the world. Now, could that have happened? I guess it's possible. But in truth claims, you have to ask not just what's possible, you have to ask what is plausible. Is it plausible that Jesus, whisked away by soldiers, hurried through sleepless days and nights, through a series of mock trials, as many as six of them, sentenced to a brutal form of torture called scourging, thorns then thrust into his head, marched out carrying the heavy beams of a cross to the hill of a garbage mound outside of the Jerusalem walls, tied to a cross, lashed to its beams, and then nailed through the wrist bones into that same beam, hoisted towards the heavens, nails pounded through the feet, hung out in the Middle Eastern sun all day long until you suffocate, unable to hold the weight under those wounded hands. And just to make sure, a spear thrust into your side at the end of the day, a little bit hurt. Yeah, you would be a little bit hurt. Taken down wrapped in grave clothes, sealed into a tomb, sentries posted on guard. Could it have happened that he was just wounded, that he swooned? It's possible. But is it plausible? Some will maintain that that the tomb, in fact, wasn't empty. This is the GPS failure theory, that uh, in a world before Google Maps and Waze, that 
that Mary in the wee hours of the morning, the darkness just went to the wrong tomb, went to an empty tomb and panicked because the empty tomb was empty, but she was actually at the wrong address. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Is it plausible? Is it plausible that not just Mary, but the other apostles, not just the apostles, but the Roman sentries, Rome with all of its ingenuity, administrative and power, power, they also got it wrong. Posted the sentries in the wrong place, guarding over a tomb that never held Jesus while he simply lay in the tomb next door, unattended. Is it possible? Yeah. Is it plausible? No. It becomes even less plausible when you realize that all Rome would have to do to quell this uprising, and you better believe they wanted to quell the Christian movement because it stood for everything that they objected to. The empowering of the weak. The overthrow of those who would govern through violence and oppression. And most importantly, the worship in one God. And that God is not Caesar. All they would have to do is go to the actual tomb, drag forth a decaying corpse and say, see, there he is. There's your Jesus. So is it possible that the tomb was never empty? Yeah, but is it plausible? Others have alleged that the disciples were delusional, hallucinatory. This is a view that became popular, surprise, surprise, in the 1960s. It was sometimes called the magic mushroom theory of the gospel. That, um, uh, that through whatever it is that was going on in their life or whatever chemistry was introduced in their body, that all of the resurrection claims were made as a result of some sort of mass hallucinatory state. But you have to realize two things. One is that we tend to make claims that go in the direction of our dreams, the things that we want to happen. Nobody wanted or expected resurrection. That just was not on their radar. It's why Jesus had such a hard time convincing his disciples that this is what needed to happen. They had long since let go any idea of resurrection, both in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world. But it just wasn't one or two people that you'd have to account for in this mass hallucination. It was hundreds spread across a span of weeks and across vast terrains of geography. And then then you have to be able to seal the case by saying that they held to this delusion or hallucination with such tenacity that they would be able to lose their lives for it. Pascal said, I will believe those witnesses who are willing to get their throats cut for what they believe. And so at the end of it, one of my favorite writers, a scholar named Tom Wright, says the early Christians, they didn't invent the empty tomb or the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. And to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. The reality is we're not the first people to want proof of the resurrection. I want you to listen to what John writes about one of Jesus' very own, one of his disciples. One who's known by the the kind of dubious nickname, the doubter. In fact, I want you to see his story through the eyes of our young people in a little drama they prepared called Seeing is Believing. This is the story 
of Doubting Thomas. What would it take for you to believe that your recently deceased loved one came back to life? You'd have to see it to believe it, right? Is that really so wrong? We have come to call Thomas, Doubting Thomas, as he was skeptical about Jesus' resurrection. But wouldn't most of us in this room feel the same way if we were in his shoes? As you experience this story unfold, really put yourself in Thomas' place. John 20, 24-25 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Thomas, there you are. We've been looking for you everywhere. What is it? The most amazing thing has happened. Jesus has risen. What are you talking about? When Martha and I went to the tomb to anoint his body with oils... The stone was rolled aside, and the tomb was empty. We thought someone had stolen his body. But no man could have rolled the stone aside. When I turned around, Jesus was there before me. But Jesus is dead. He was crucified. That is true. He died on the cross. Yes, he did. He was buried in the tomb. Yes, Thomas. He was crucified and died and was buried. But now we bring the good news that he's alive. Mary spoke to him outside his tomb. He said to me, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But instead, go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That's not possible. You must have imagined seeing I swear, I saw him. Your grief over the death of our Lord is confusing you. Here, sit and rest your weary mind. Jesus didn't just appear to Mary. How can this be? You know the man Cleopas? I do. Well, he and a companion were walking on the road to Emmaus, and while they were walking, they were discussing the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Many people all over the land are talking about these events. Cleopas had also heard about Jesus' tomb being empty, but they weren't sure what to believe. It's an unbelievable tale. While they were walking, they encountered a man who talked about the word of the Lord with them. They talked about Moses and the prophets and all that had been said about the coming of the Lord. They, they invited this man into their home. We've talked about these things many times ourselves. Why is it important now? Because the man that Cleopas was talking to was Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> you really expect me to believe that? When the man broke bread at the table, Cleopas said it was as if his eyes were opened and he was able to see Jesus Christ. It's just like the last supper we had with our Lord before he was arrested. I tell you, Thomas, it's true. It's all true. Peter's Jesus is risen. Peter's telling the truth. I'm sorry, but this story is just way too incredible to believe. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hands into them and put my hand into his side... I will not believe. It's getting late. I'm going to bed. Did you lock the door? I did. Very well. Good night, then. So the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. My Lord. You appear to us again. My Lord, is it really possible that you're standing here in front of me now? Put your finger here and examine my hand. This is where the nails from the cross pierce your skin. Reach out your hand and pour it into my side. This is where the soldier's spear pierced your side. But how can this be, Lord? You were crucified, died, and were buried. How is it that I, I can see you before me with my own two eyes? 
How is it that I can feel your wounds with my own two hands? No continue on belief, but believe. My Lord and God. Oh, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not, not seen and yet have believed. It's hard to believe that a perfect God will make himself flesh so that he may live among his people and die for them. But it is true. You are so deeply loved that Jesus died for you. And the good news is that he is alive and well. If you identify with Thomas, do not be ashamed, as there are many who can relate. But ask God to help you trust him. Read the word so that you will believe. John twenty thirty one says, Now, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is our hope on this day that you encounter Christ and choose life in his name. Thank you. getting late, I realize it's okay. I made a trip to our bakery yesterday. We've got 300 hot cross buns waiting for you out there. We'll give you lunch on the way. There is one other witness to the resurrection. Uh, and sometimes we don't notice when we go through the chapter. We see Mary. We see Thomas. But it's the one who knew it with the most intimate and explicit detail of anyone. The one who had himself made the journey from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and now in resurrection would make the journey home to the skies. Jesus himself, and his testimony comes in the very last verses of the gospel. And you heard them read, I want you to hear them again. This Jesus He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, so many that aren't even written in this book, but the ones that are written are written for this purpose, so that you you might believe. What is it that you were asked to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Thomas' testimony. For Mary, it was finding hope in the middle of despair and sorrow. For Thomas, it it was finding truth in, in the middle of doubt. But for all of us, Jesus confronts us with that question, what will you do with the resurrection of the Son of God? And invites that singular answer, I believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Why is that important? Because it's not enough just to believe that Jesus lived a long time ago. Lots of people believe that. It's not even enough just to believe that, that he was who he said he was, as the Son of God. Even the demons believed that. It's not enough to believe in the historical fact of the crucifixion or the historical fact of the resurrection. Because Christianity is not primarily a religion about check boxes on a list of doctrines. You have to believe this, 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 and this. It's certainly not an itinerary of behaviors and practices that you have to perform. The question that we are confronted with today, will you accept him as your Lord 
and your Savior. Will you fall on your knees before Him? I want you to to listen closely to the testimony of of those who have had exactly that experience. You say, is it possible? Of course it's possible. It's happened in a myriad of lives for every century, in every century since Jesus first offered the invitation. I want you to listen now as my friend and our brother Kyoko comes and shares his testimony of Christ as our Lord and our God. Happy Easter. When I was told to share testimony, I reflected on what testimony actually meant in my life growing up. I'm from East Africa, and when we give testimonies there, they last. So you guys are in for a ride. And I think Pastor Richard and the rest of the people who organized here knew they gave me the last chance, so they didn't want me to mess up the schedule of the rest of the church service. But I don't know about you, but every time I hear testimony, sometimes we think of the miraculous things that have happened in our lives. We think of great things. I mean listening to Maud give her testimony and the power that she derives from knowing Christ makes all of us realize who God is. But growing up, there were a lot of testimonies I had that to us today would not mean anything. People giving testimony because they had a meal to eat. People giving testimony because they had shelter for a night. So we are blessed already. I have never had anybody come to this pulpit to give a testimony about how God met their need for food the last week. So if you are not giving a testimony about that, you are already blessed. If you are not giving a testimony about how God has come through for you to provide shelter because you don't have shelter, You're already blessed. But there are many people out there, even here in Canada, who, to them, getting food, getting health care, just what we consider normal things of life are a testimony. Looking back into my life, Easter was just, like anything else, a nice long holiday, really from school, from work. I had four days free. And I don't think there was really much connection with what did Easter really mean. And today as we reflect on the events of Easter weekend and the accompanying emotions from despair to triumph, I also hope it's a chance for each one of us to reflect on what Easter Sunday really means. I have a verse I want to read that for me really connects what Easter means to me. In Philippians 3, chapter 10, no, verse 10, (laughs) Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. 
I want to know Christ, yet know the power of his resurrection. And I don't know about you, but for me, Easter really If Friday happened and there was no Sunday, Easter Sunday, as Pastor Richard said, we'd all be lost. The resurrection of Christ and God's power manifested in that gives meaning to what our faith is today. It's very easy to view the resurrection of Christ as a historical happening, but in all reality for Christians, without the resurrection, our faith would have no meaning. And we can only know the same resurrection power if we've experienced the same kind of death. What do we mean by this? How do you experience the power of resurrection through death? It's through death to self. Death to what others think of you, but focusing on what God thinks of you. Because I think in the age we live, a lot of the time we are more focused on what others think of us We are more focused on how to fulfill our own selfish needs, but we need to die to that to be able to actually experience the power of resurrection. And for me, that is really it for us. As believers, we can experience that resurrection power through dying to those selfish things we have in our lives. As we leave this church, as we live out here, may we live out the power of resurrection by dying to self, by dying to those things that hold us back and living out the life that Christ wants for us. May God bless you as you live out the power of resurrection in your life today and the days to come. Thank you, Kyoko. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on the stage. We're going to need them for what we're going to do next. There is one last testimony. I said you were going to get three and three. Uh, the last one is left to you. What will your testimony be today? Uh, I suppose you could say I, I'm not ready. Uh, I'm not willing to bank my life on this. I can't quite believe it. I, I'm willing to, to leave Jesus here for now. Or maybe you will say, I'm going to believe it, but I'm just kind of, I'm kind of going to believe it culturally. I'm going to keep Jesus at an arm's distance, kind of politely boxed into the affairs of Sunday morning, but disconnected from my life the rest of the week. That's another option. But here's the third one. To say in your life, maybe for the first time today, I will trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. To say along with Mary and scores of other people, I was hurting and he gave me hope. To say with Thomas, I was doubting and he showed me the truth. He loved me enough to come into this world, flesh and blood, to demonstrate what God was like. To show the evidence of God's care and compassion for his people and of his willingness, indeed his desire to make right everything that has gone wrong in my life in the world, to forgive sins, to bring justice, to overcome the grave. What more truth do you need?